AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey, Matt, you know, um, I, I guess I've been around for a while. It's good to see you, by the way. Um, see I've been around for a while, and, you know, over the years, they've been introducing, like, segmentation functions, uh, memory randomization functions, direct memory access controls, uh, trusted computing modules, and, um, you know, I think they're continuing to make some headway in improving the capabilities for processing that is processing hardware to help protect against, uh, you know, malicious activities. But it looks like you've found an article here that takes it a step further. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure thing. So this is an announcement from Intel. They've got this new technology they're calling Control Flow Enforcement Technology, or CET. I guess you pronounce it SET or, or CAT, I'm not sure. Uh, but the whole point of this technology is to prevent uh, certain types of manipulation of the stack. In particular, most people might know return-oriented programming. So this was something they published about in 2016. So they've had the idea for a while, but they've just announced that the new Tiger Lake processors that are coming out in the near future uh, will be the first microarchitecture to have this. So the big question is, what is this all about? And to, to explain that, I kind of have to take a few steps back. So one of the classic attacks on processors is a buffer overflow. So basically in a buffer overflow, what you're trying to do is gain control of um, the current instruction, and you do that by manipulating things on the stack. And you kind of need to know the right memory location to jump to in order for your attack to work and point to the code you've also loaded in. So over the years, um, processor designers have come up with new ways of preventing this and, you know, operating system implementers the same. Uh, there are things that you might have heard of called address space layout randomization uh, and then executable space protection, which you might know from Windows as DEP or data execution prevention. And these are the sorts of things that make that specific attack much harder, place things in places in memory that you can't really predict and then make certain things uh, non-executable. So even if you put something there, it'll never be treated as executable code. So ROP came in uh, a few years back and ROP return-oriented programming is basically a way of saying, well, if I can't write my own code, what I'll do is I'll grab bits and pieces from code that I know is in a, like a, a known place on the system, like libc, you know, return-oriented programming. I think the first time I've ever heard of it was when it was called return to libc. Where as long as you know what kind of code is somewhere in those those libraries, like those base libraries in C, you can kind of cut and paste your own and then hop through it to get done what you want to get done, which is which was pretty cool at the time. And still kind of, if you're doing that sort of work today, if you're writing exploits, you, you kind of have to know ROP if you're running it on a modern operating system. Mm -hmm. But what Intel has done, they've got this, this CET, and the whole idea is instead of using a regular stack, they've got what's called a control stack. So even if you're messing with the regular data stack on a system, when the code returns, if there's any sort of change, if there's difference between the control stack and the data stack, it halts execution and says, somebody's messing with my code, they're trying to exploit it, shut the process down, which is good, which means that this very fundamental thing that you need to know in order to exploit things um, by stack smashing, and there, there are variations on ROP as well, but it seems to be a pretty good way of making this even more difficult. This is happening at runtime, so yep. any, okay, that helps, right? Because um, 
no matter how it gets inserted, from what source, how long it's been there, when it tries to run, the chip is going to see that mm -hmm. and stop it. Right. So it does require that the operating system is also aware and supports this function. Uh, they kind of have to work together. And right now, I think Windows 10 version 2004 supports it. And I don't know of any others that do. Um, but it's probably a chicken and an egg sort of thing where, you know, people aren't going to support it until the hardware is there and the hardware is not going to have to see they, everyone has to kind of work together to get it to work. Uh, but when it does, it sounds like it's pretty promising. I mean, there are some people who have already come out with some, they're postulating possible ways to get around it, but still it seems like, uh, raising the bar is a good way to do it. Now, you know, Intel has been doing things to their processors for a while to add extra security. Um, one of the interesting things that this is, this is a specific way of preventing malicious behavior instead of like monitoring it or providing an environment for working around it. Like, um, management engine sort of lets you have introspection and look into what's going on in the system. And then SGX is sort of like, I think it was an enclave. They're both different kinds of things that Intel's put in, um, which are all processor security in one way or the other. Uh, but this seems to be like a fundamental change. In, in the way that stacks are handled, which is kind of cool. Uh, so I'd love to see how this this plays out. And I think there's probably going to be a lot of work done in this area in the next couple of years as this rolls out, because, you know, once this is out there, people are going to start hacking on it. They're going to try and find ways around it. You know, there, there are a few things that I think are really interesting observations here. I think I'll start with the uh, sort of the first, which is, um, you know, uh, as uh, hardware has become more advanced, um, I think we're getting to the point where having faster processors, I mean, is obviously desirable when you're doing really high compute situations, but to really start, it's gotten to the point where we have enough hardware capability that adding more features to support security functions is actually more practical than it had been in the past. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, clearly it's a higher priority than it has been in the past as well. So it's interesting to see that uh, more hardware is being brought into the solution to help make sure that things are processing the way they're supposed to be. And I, I think of two analogies that are perhaps a little bit close to this. Um, not, not entirely, but a little bit close. And unfortunately, they have to do with uh, my long history <laughs> in the security stuff. Uh, one, I'll go back to uh, Space Shuttle. You know, and I, I don't remember all the details around this, but I was reading an article about how the space shuttle actually had five navigation computers. I think I got the number correct here. Mm -hmm. um, and that was to facilitate redundancy more so than anything else, but they actually had more than one navigation uh, software stack that was used in parallel with, and they were actually developed independently. So there was one organization that created the navigation calculations and a separate organization that created a separate set of navigation uh, software so that they run in parallel to make sure that they agreed with each other in terms of how to do the navigation accurately. And then on top of that, they had five computers running these so that I think actually three of one version was uh, running on one on three, three computers and then you have two others so that you could actually have two, any two computers fail and still have a legitimate voting algorithm to choose the best navigation path for the space shuttle. So uh, I think that was kind of interesting. You know, uh, and it sounds a little ridiculous, like why so many? But you know, in the uh, when you're traveling in space, one of the things they were concerned about is when you're using integrated circuits in space, 
you have the threat of radiation actually penetrating the integrated circuit, actually changing bits in your calculations. And so they were concerned about that and wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to be a problem. So uh, having five computers perhaps wasn't all that ridiculous. And of course, you know, when they designed Space Shuttle, that was a big deal, uh, making sure that it was really, really reliable. Um, a, a sort of a similar thing that I'd worked on actually many years ago had to do with basically running cryptographic algorithms. And, you know, when we started out developing cryptographic algorithms, they were all done in hardware exclusively. We did all kinds of analysis to make sure that they wouldn't fail in bad ways. Mm -hmm. And um, so as we transitioned into starting to do really high assurance cryptographic algorithms, we were trying to figure out a way you could do it in software and still be able to continue with that assurance. And so what we did is we actually had sort of a parallel process that was running alongside to make sure that there were no undesired changes in the processing steps that were performed. And um, I won't go into the little secrets that we had at the time for doing that, but it's very similar to this kind of thing, that is to actually have something that's running alongside to check and make sure things aren't uh, going in a way that you didn't expect or the, the way they shouldn't be. So it's nice to see, in my opinion, uh, really nice to see that more of the engineering is going into making it more secure as opposed to just simply making it bigger or faster. That's good points. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I like uh, the observation that uh, we're going to use hardware to protect. Um, I've, I've been in a lot of conversations where you, you have resources that are pretty much already tapped out and you're trying to add something to it to protect it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll be interesting over time to see if we go from the you know, 1% up to maybe getting a, a decent share of 10 to 20% of the resources that are actually allocated intentionally to protection. Um, so I think it's a great observation. Um, and I had uh, heard a similar concept to this. Uh, it wasn't hardware-based, it was software-based. There was kind of an add-on solution where you just had that, that copy on the side and you were doing these periodic checks. Um, but obviously this, if it's, if it's happening while the code is running, beautiful, and if it's done with hardware, it's going to be fast. So, um, sounds great. Uh, concept, at least, sounds great. Well, we well you know, of course, buffer overflow attacks have been a menace for years and years and years and years. <laughs> and to be able to get, you know, further ahead in protecting against the buffer overflow attack is really powerful. I just hope it doesn't, you know, legitimize creating poor code quality. Hmm, that's a good point. Um... I would argue that there's enough problems of getting software to run properly, enough other vulnerabilities you could introduce, that I'd really appreciate it if some of the really fundamental ones could be sort of swept under the rug a little bit. Um, yep. That way, at least in general, you know, even if someone still does manage to find a bug, at least the ones that you can you can fix automatically are handled. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I could play counterpoint on my argument there. Quite frankly, you know, a lot of code checks have to be put into place, you know, boundary checks and things to prevent buffer over, uh, uh, buffer overruns. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, if you can, if you actually could depend on the hardware to do that, um, you could save actually a lot of coding, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of testing activities to make sure that, uh, that the software is secure. So, you know, perhaps there's somewhat of a uh, transition, and it's going to be a long transition, I presume, because this is just one technology. There are certainly other, you know, chip manufacturers that provide processing 
units that would need to catch up or somehow replicate similar kinds of checks. But um, this would provide, I mean, clearly from their point of view, Intel's point of view, this would be a competitive advantage. That is, you want to run things on their processors if you can um, do coding more efficiently and more effectively, but still securely. So. Hey, Matt, one more question. When, when the, you detect a, a condition where uh, the code doesn't look right. You just get an abnormal ending, right? It just stops processing. Is that I think the, the process just, just quits. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. probably the best okay. case scenario. Um, I mean, it, it, rather than crashing, right? Which is what would, might normally happen unless someone has properly crafted the attack. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the best case scenario. I mean, it's probably going to be up to the operating systems to decide what to do next. Do you notify the user? Do you not notify the user? Um, but at least nothing, whatever problem you were having halts right there, so. Yeah, it, you know, being able to recognize the exception gives you the opportunity to treat the exception in an appropriate way. So it could be, you know, restart the process. It could be uh, you just kind of back up and do something a little differently, but there, there are lots of options around that. I think Matt, to what you were alluding to, mm -hmm. uh, the first step is making sure you recognize that something is awry. That's an interesting thing too. I mean, that might be that might be an API you might provide to antivirus or whatever security platform you've already got running to say, hey, you know, this is the software responsible for securing the system. We just found something, and it's mm -hmm. up to you guys to do. You know, do you want to notify the user? Do you want to trace back the execution? Do you want to notify whatever central management system you've got for your antivirus in a corporate environment to say someone tried to exploit this box? I mean, the options are pretty open. Uh, but kind of, mm -hmm. kind of exciting. So there have been a lot of activities related to uh, quarantining and, and the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in the cybersecurity area. And uh, one of those areas is DDoS attacks. So Brian, you're going to share some information about DDoS attacks and what's been happening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And, you know, um, We've talked about DDoS attacks a bunch of times on this program, but I thought it would be helpful to kind of start out with defining sort of the context around this as a, uh, you know, to make sure the folks are, are grounded in the same place that we are. You know, when I refer to a DDoS attack, this is distributed denial of service attack, um, we're really talking about large amounts of network traffic that are intended to overwhelm some point in the network capacity that is to really kind of take somebody out of service. The objective here is to disrupt service for somebody. And, you know, an example might be, and this is actually a commonly misunderstood facet of uh, denial of service attacks. Uh, folks will sometimes, you know, think that they can defend themselves with a firewall that just plain isn't a practical thing to do. And so if we were to take, for example, and this is just sort of a hypothetical example, a home router, perhaps that home router has capacity, network capacity or the capacity internally to process about 50 megabits per second of traffic. And I think that's actually, you know, fairly typical for, uh, you know, like a home uh, network service at this point to be up in the tens or perhaps 50 megabits per second of uh, capacity. An attacker might choose to throw about, you know, say maybe a gigabit per second of capacity those of traffic at this target to try to overwhelm that device. And invariably, there will be bottlenecks in that process. The, their service will be completely down and out. 
In fact, there's actually the risk that perhaps others in the neighborhood or something are impacted by that attack or something else. And the only way to really protect against something like that is to have a service upstream that really diverts that attack traffic to a scrubbing facility so that they can analyze those packets and determine which ones are allowed to pass through and which ones are not allowed to pass through. I guess the alternative way is to just kind of black hole all of that traffic. They just do uh, throw it all in the bit bucket, in which case the, uh, the victim, the target, still doesn't get service. Uh, they're still a victim of denial of service attack, but it would at least protect others that are around uh, using address spaces nearby or, uh, you know, network facilities that are nearby. So, you know, from a network service provider's point of view, first order of business is make sure that others aren't impacted, but uh, ideally you want to be able to get the uh, end user back in the service. So that's what we're talking about is, you know, way too much network traffic for a particular endpoint as we talk about uh, what a denial of service attack is. Now, what might motivate those attacks? Well, there's some, been some sort of traditional motivations for these attacks. First is, you know, sort of the classic extortion. I'm going to attack you unless you pay me money. And, uh, you know, that's been tried against businesses in the past. Um, it's not very popular, and I think part of the reason it's not very popular for attackers to do this is, first of all, it's sort of a pain in the neck. Uh, they have to try to find somebody that's interested in paying them or, you know, interested in protected. It's not really easy to find who administers a website, for example. It's risky for the attacker to take since, uh, you know, they can potentially be attributed to the attack through the extortion communications, the funding transfers that might be, you know, if somebody were to actually pay them, or the attack infrastructure that's being used. So, um, you know, if you think about doing extortion attacks, don't do it. It's not a good idea. You're, it's illegal and you're likely to get caught. Some nation states have used it for political statements, that is to try to take out, you know, some infrastructure or something, um, and perhaps even, you know, as a distraction to draw security folks away from, you know, uh, another attack that might be taking place that's much more subtle. So those are sort of the traditional motivations for, for attacks, and, you know, they do occur from time to time. It's not uh, certainly not unheard of. Um, but one of the current and predominant motivations for doing denial service attacks happens to be related to video gaming. You know, video gaming's become very competitive. Uh, there are literally, there are folks that make a living uh, playing video games. They get sponsorships and they get, uh, you know, prize money for winning games. And uh, obviously, gamers want to win. And so they're willing to potentially pay the gaming advantage. And, uh, you know, some of them perhaps don't even realize that conducting denial of service attacks, you know, impacting network service is actually illegal. And uh, so there's become a market for gamers to actually, you know, trace the origin of who they're competing against and to conduct an attack and to uh, actually, you know, use that attack to gain an advantage while they're playing a, a competitive video game. So that's sort of the motivation behind all of this. And uh, it's been reported that the predominant users of DDoS attack or higher services are actually teenagers. Uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, like I said, uh, many may not realize that denial of service attacks are illegal and they could be uh, actually disrupting many others and perhaps really important business. So it's really important that, um, you know, folks recognize that and aren't conducting denial of service attacks, but it's also important that network service providers that you choose have protection mechanisms in place to be able to protect against these types of attacks. 
Now, um, there are multiple examples of DDoS attack for higher services. Uh, if you're interested in this, Krebs on Security, this is, uh, you know, news reporting, security news reporting by Brian Krebs. Um, you know, Brian and I have uh, interacted a number of times over the past related to denial of service attacks and other activities. He is an excellent reporter in depth on activities that are taking place in this and a number of other security areas. Uh, he tends to get behind the scenes and give you some insight into other activities that are going on. He has a number of articles around arrests or activities that have taken place to deter uh, these DDoS for higher services. So um, we'll provide a link to you uh, with this video so you can go and take a look at that if you're interested. What I wanted to really share with you today is how DDoS attack activity has actually changed over time. And uh, so what we're looking at here is a graph that dates back to January 2019 and extends up to literally this past week, June, um, uh, actually June 11th year in 2020. And uh, what we're looking at is sort of the number of attacks that we have mitigated, that is AT&T services have mitigated associated with a segment of our network services. And this happens to be a segment that's predominantly used by consumers. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the specific segments here or the quantity of the attacks, but I'll give you sort of a reference point. It's in the hundreds of attacks that we see per week that we recognize and mitigate automatically, completely silent to anybody that uh, is using the network services. And the point here is that um, our objective is to make sure that the service stays in service and uh, is not disrupted by these attacks. So what's really interesting about this is we have a period of time, and this is fairly typical where, say, in the summer break, we see, you know, as school gets out, um, more kids are home. Uh, perhaps in the spring, the weather isn't all that great, and so we see a growth and attack activity, and what we're seeing actually is a tailoring down or a taper down of that activity as the kids go back to school. And some of that might be influenced by things like you know, they have sports events that are getting them away from playing video games, or they have other outdoor activities that they may be performing that uh, get them away from those video games. We also typically see a spike in activity around the holiday season. Uh, this is the, you know, new games come out leading into the uh, holiday retail season. So beginning around November time, time frame, and then going into uh, just after the first or second week of January, we'll see a spike in activity. And we see that uh, basically represented here by some additional activities taking place around that December, January timeframe. But what's actually, I think, really interesting here is that once the lockdown activities started to take place for COVID-19, we started to see a continuing increase in the amount of activity. And I think it's actually interesting that, you know, as this lockdown activity has occurred, there's been some, I'll say, increase in the lockdown activity, and I think perhaps even increasing frustration or boredom that's, that's taken place, uh, and more and more kids are playing uh, video games to pass the time as opposed to doing other things that uh, otherwise would be what I would consider to be more healthy. And so um, what, what we're seeing here, in fact, is, um, you know, sports events have been canceled. In some cases, parks have been closed. Folks aren't going on vacations or trips and, and such. And so we really have folks there, and they're even, they're schooling 
uh, to the extent they've been in school, they've been uh, working from home, and so uh, they perhaps have additional time to uh, do these games. And as I said, if they're competitive, uh, looking for some way to get an, an advantage over the ones they're competing against, and they, they might re resort to a denial of service attack to do that. That's interesting, Brian. Um, I Looking at that chart, without the context of gaming that you provided, but with the context of COVID, I would have offered a, a different explanation. I would think that there are a number of businesses right now who have lost the ability to operate as a brick and mortar store, completely closed mm -hmm. down or limited to curbside pickup or other you know, minimum contact options. And they're, they're going to only be thriving because they can take orders over the internet. Now, if you operate mm -hmm. in the extortion space, you've got a whole bunch more people now for whom their website is a critical part of their business that it wasn't before. So mm -hmm. if, you know, if I hadn't known that gaming was a factor here, I would have thought that these are people who are trying to take advantage of businesses who absolutely need their websites to stay up in order to stay in business. Yeah. Well, actually, Matt, it's actually a very good question because the next segment here of this will go into that a little bit more to kind of hopefully show that that's perhaps not the case. Okay. And, and I have to say, some of what I'm saying here is a little bit conjecture, but I have supporting evidence all around that uh, that really basically uh, supports the uh, that this is associated with video gaming and uh, is the primary reason for the changes here. So let's talk about this a little bit further because I think uh, you actually uh, provided a good segue into the next piece here. First is sort of some corroborating evidence here. That is, uh, this is actually a report from Kaspersky. Uh, they do some independent analysis, and I think it's based on predominantly using honeypots, that is to allow devices to get infected and then see what types of activities they're performing. Uh, and of those activities, it would include denial of service attack activities. And so what they've done here is compared the first quarter of 2019, that's the green bars, the fourth quarter of 2019, that's the red bars, and the activity in the first quarter of 2020. And predominantly, I'm looking at the, uh, the bars way over to the right here. It is the maximum duration of smart attacks. And, you know, we see this also in maximum duration of attacks. But what we're seeing here is actually a significant increase in the duration of attacks. Uh, that they're seeing, and this is, again, they uh, associated with these types of activities. Uh, I think they actually even attribute it to some extent to uh, the COVID lockdown activity. So the link is provided here so that you can take a little closer look at that report. And similarly, I think it's kind of interesting to see here that we have um, the uh, distribution of source IP addresses used in these attacks, which is a little bit tangential to this discussion here, but uh, I thought it was really interesting that only about three and a half percent of those sources are actually from the United States, and most are actually from many other countries. We have, um, you know, Brazil. That kind of surprised me. Why Brazil is, is uh, so high? That's twelve percent. They have the biggest, uh, followed by China at eleven and a half percent, and then uh, a couple in the seven to eight percent. That is Egypt and Vietnam, respectively, and Iran actually showing up significantly is five and a half percent. So. That's a little surprising to me, uh, but uh, an interesting observation itself. And I think perhaps that shows up in some respects in the uh, Internet weather report as well. But the last reference point I'll pro provide here, and I don't have a graphic associated with that, but there certainly is a graphic in the, uh, in the report, but Amazon 
posted a report for the first quarter of 2020, and they, uh, they do not show any obvious changes. Now, Amazon's perspective is actually a very much a business perspective, not a consumer uh, services net perspective, and they did not show any significant increase in attack activities. That is the frequency of attacks and duration of attacks. What they did see, however, is they uh, reported uh, what they believe to be the largest attack so far at 2.3 terabits per second, which is, uh, you know, that's a, a pretty formidable attack. Um, if you consider, we were using an example just a little bit ago about, you know, say 50 megas per second, if you can imagine, you know, literally essentially a million times larger attack, that's a, that's a pretty big attack. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Brian, this, this is the biggest reported in, like, Internet history, right, 2.3 terabits? Biggest reported. Uh, there may be others uh, that uh, have not been reported, and sometimes these reports can be a little bit, uh, you have to really kind of dig into it a little bit. I'm inclined to believe what Amazon are reporting because they're not, uh, you know, looking at all kinds of different parts of a network to try to assess the uh, attack size. I think they would have a pretty good perspective. I have seen other reports where I believe they've been double, triple in counting, and I've even seen other purported reports where they were relying on the attacker as the source of information about how big the attack was, which is obviously not a reliable source. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even think the attacker really knows how big their attacks are. So um, it, it is important to kind of take reports like this with a grain of salt, but I'm inclined to believe that the Amazon has measured this relatively accurately. One other detail I would ask about, Brian, I remember when we hit a terabit per second, uh, that uh, was done by kind of a different method of asking, like, caching servers to dump their cache. Uh, but this one is more of the typical uh, reflection attack. Is that correct? Yeah, there have been a number of, uh, I, I think, predominantly the, the most, for, particularly for denial service attack for higher services, the most economical type of attack for them to use is the type where they look for servers across the internet that are exposed in one way or another and try to use those servers as a means to help reflect or amplify the attacks. And so um, uh, I think the one that you were referring to was related to, if you correct me if I'm wrong, might have been associated with the uh, network time protocol. Is that the one you remember? Uh, well, I know time, time servers can be used for amplification. There was also just a, a caching server attack. It was, I remembered it because it was about terabit per second. And that was like, wow, oh, we made it to one go. terabit per second. Yeah, there have been a couple of little things like that that have been identified in the past where um, a small request, you know, a packet sent with a small request can create a really large response out of the server. Uh, for the most part, you know, network time protocol was uh, one of those. I'm forgetting the specific name of it, but I think it was a database technology had another uh, yep. sort of um, uh, issue like that. Generally, those get corrected relatively relatively quickly and, uh, be, you know, sort of fall out of the, the foray. The most popular that had been, has been and had been used for some time is the use of DNS reflection because there are certain, you know, characteristics of DNS that can support uh, some application. And on top of that, um, it, there are DNS servers all over the Internet. You can't really turn those off, so it makes it more difficult. Uh, a lot of good controls have been put into place, and the mitigation platforms are really good at being able to mitigate those types of attacks, but there isn't really a way to kind of make them go away on the Internet. Um, a lot of folks will say that um, what facilitates all of these sort of reflective attacks is the fact that 
some network service providers will allow spoofed addresses onto the network. That is, you can lie about what address the, the traffic is coming from, and if you can lie about that, spoof the source address, you can send a request to a server and have the response go to some other address, which ultimately is the target of an attack. So it's that reflection effect, reflecting it off the server uh, toward the, uh, the target. And uh, there, but there certainly are network service providers around the world that do not do a good job at preventing spoofing activities. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the uh, solve world hunger on Internet type things where you'd like to be able to say all the network service providers prevent spoofing. And um, I suspect that uh, when we were looking at that pie chart associated with many of the countries that are the originators of um, uh, attack activity, that you would most likely find that uh, spoofing is at least in pockets of those uh, areas possible, uh, more so than in other places. Very good questions. So I, I think this was an interesting observation, you know, and uh, the activities obviously continue to go on. Hopefully as the uh, lockdowns relax, uh, we'll also see a relaxation and people, uh, you know, getting back to normal lives and not depending on video games and DDoS attacks to compete at video games. So, Mr. Singer, seems like you've got a story for us about yet another ransom scheme on the internet, but this time targeting websites? Yes, uh, this attack uh, is using what has become very familiar, this notion that uh, you need to pay a ransom in order to get your data back. Um, in this case, it doesn't matter what software you're running, um, doesn't matter where you're hosted, what you know, ports are open, because it's really just a, an attempt by extortionists uh, to give you a believable message asking you to deposit bitcoins into their wallet. Um, so I thought it was good to just get the word out uh, in case there are people receiving these notes. Uh, it comes in uh, at an email letting you know that uh, they, they're at least reporting to you that they have found a vulnerability on your website, they've exploited it, they have accessed your database, and they have copied your database to an offshore site and now they're gonna reach out to all of your clients and partners because they were able to find that information in the database. They're gonna let them know that they've hacked you. Um, they're also gonna uh, use search engine optimization uh, tools to remove you from the search top search list. Uh, so it's basically a pretty good threat um, that they're gonna take your small business, your website dependent business uh, off the map uh, unless you pay quickly, they give you a few days to pay the ransom. What, what I thought was interesting is, you know, if you were the recipient of this, uh, I guess the first thing you'd ask is, you know, how would I know whether these actors have really done anything to my site at all? And, you know, obviously in the cybersecurity, you know, world, we, we do vulnerability tests, we search for weaknesses, we test against them. Um, and if you were infected with some type of malware that's destructive, that's gonna ask for ransom. Usually something you're using, you know, would have something that doesn't look right and you would get a message of some kind that would pop up telling you that uh, you have this much time, you know, contact us here. Uh, maybe even a little countdown timer telling you how much time you have left. Uh, but, but in this case, the attack simply is just sending you a note 
telling you that they've they've compromised your site, uh, they've copied your database, uh, and they need for you to pay them. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting uh, in the report uh, by the uh, the security firm Web ARX who put this out is they said it was a well written ransom note, which I think they're saying that people are more likely to fall for if it's if it's well written. Uh, for me personally, I read through it and it was maybe a little too well written. It said thusly damaging your reputation, and I, I usually would not use thusly. Uh, in a sentence like that. Their closing statement I did also find interesting. It said, there is no countermeasure. Um, so striking that fear and trying to lead them to actually making the payment. It's been help, but you say there is no countermeasure. And that's kind of like the uh, when on multiple choice test, when you get the always or never choice, you never choose. <laughs> Avoid those or always responses. choose something else. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, uh, yeah, this, there's, there's no attack that has no countermeasure. I, I think it's also kind of interesting in this um, that the, uh, in, in any, uh, this is an oxymoron, any reputable attack, they're going to be able to provide, they're going to want to provide evidence that they are actually a credible attack because obviously, you know, this sort of thing is not going to be very convincing for folks. Um, I think the trick here is that, that perhaps that gray area, that is, they provide some evidence, but it's not compelling evidence. You know, so for example, perhaps they uh, argue that they're going to, they, you know, they've hacked your website and extracted your database, and they provide you a piece of information that perhaps is accessible from that website, but you know, sensitive? is it really based on an attack or something? And so, you know, did they really demonstrate that there was volume? Maybe they were able to, you know, pull a few pieces of information out and, you know, create a more convincing story. So uh, I would be actually very skeptical unless they provide some compelling evidence. We've seen that tactic, right, too. We say, here's a dribble of what I've stolen from you. And you look mm -hmm. and think, well, is that something you could have got anywhere else? Is it publicly available? or? If there's some other way they could have gotten to that information, yeah, great point. Mm -hmm. And, and th these actors weren't providing any of that, uh, any real detail. Just your domain name basically saying that mm -hmm. we got your stuff. I remember there was a DDoS scam a couple years back when Lizard Squad was still a big name. That went that sent an email out saying that we are Lizard Squad and here's is an article about us and we're going to DDoS your site. And the only evidence they provided was that there was an article that Lizard Squad had attacked somebody else, but not like that they were actually Lizard Squad. Uh, and that was actually kind of popular for a while. And I, this feels mm -hmm. a little like that to me. So, uh, yeah, you know, there are all kinds of marketing scams that are out there. This is uh, an example of marketing scams by scammers. And, um, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, not, not surprising. And, you know, it, I'm pretty convinced that you can pretty much sell just about anything on the Internet. Um, if you have a good marketing campaign, um, it's a little bit unfortunate, but the, uh, the you know the audience is so broad that uh, these kinds of things can be, um, you know, and this is really trying to play on fear, uncertainty, and doubt to uh, you know try to make somebody nervous about a particular situation and react perhaps irrationally. And this is illegal, and they should get caught, um, but people need to be aware that there's this kind of stuff going on and. Um, that there are vulnerabilities on websites, and there are really ransomware attacks. Um, but mm -hmm. just the fact that they exist doesn't mean they happen to you without any evidence or proof.
uh, and it's always good to get to refer a case like this to some people who are cybersecurity professionals and have them do some, some analysis. Yeah, very good point because um, I, I think likely uh, you, you're pointing out that the letter was crafted rather well, and that has probably come through iterations and determining how they can better craft the message to convince folks to actually react to them, sound more professional. Uh, there are probably numerous other examples, so long as folks are reporting to law enforcement, for example, there may be a number of examples that could be compared to determine how credible the case is. And, you know, our, our speculation or our expectation here is that this is not a credi credible claim. And, uh, you know, to be able to merge that with others that have seen similar types of letters would be able to help uh, solidify that, gain more confidence in the decision. But also one other thing I'll mention here is that, uh, you know, there are cyber insurance companies that uh, kind of, you know, obviously they're underwriting uh, organizations to help protect them from cyber attacks. And uh, many times there are attacks like this or extortion attacks where they would have developed a decent amount of experience or exposure to cases like this and would be able to make good judgments about what is credible versus not. So if you have a policy, you know, they're going to put somebody on it and they're going to investigate and find out if there's mm -hmm. anything to it. Yep. Good point. And if you don't have a policy, you may want to consider looking at it. All right, guys, let's take a look at this week's Internet weather. These are the top 10 most probed ports for this past week. You can see that the top four slots didn't really change, but we have a newcomer in slot five. So let's run through them. So in first place, we have port 23 TCP, that's Telnet, followed by 80ICMP, which is uh, ICMP ping. After that is 445 TCP, which is SMB, and then 1433 TCP, which is Microsoft SQL Server. So the newcomer this week is 123 UDP, which is the network time protocol, or NTP, and we'll take a closer look at that. 443 TCP is TLS or SSL. Um, that's moved up one spot, followed by AATCP, which is plain old HTTP. Um, 22 TCP is SSH, it's down three. 81 TCP is an alternate web port, sometimes associated with IoT devices, that's up one. And in 10th place, we have 3389, which is remote desktop protocol. Yeah, I think it's notable that the uh, more than half is others. And of course, there are lots of others that can be part of this, but um, you know, looking at the top 10, gives you, you know, sort of a, a view of the landscape, but it, it's not a complete thing. And so folks should be kind of wary that any application that's on the internet uh, is potentially subject to scanning activities. That's a very good point. And in fact, we have some, um, some evidence of that in another slide later on. So the top 10 most sources probing, this is individual sources sending traffic and not the volume of traffic. You can see that the top six slots have not changed at all, which I think is a new thing for me. Um, it just shows that there's significant scanning activity uh, enough to not budge any of these over time. I'm um, going to skip over a few of these ports. Uh, 53 UDP is DNS, which we did talk about briefly. Uh, 8080 TCP is another web port. A lot of time it's a, a proxy. Uh, sometimes it's another uh, IoT device. It, it, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, 443 is up seven spots, it's, which is funny because uh, it didn't change that much in the overall uh, traffic rankings, but it did move up a lot in the number of sources. Uh, 
27032, I believe, is the Steam client, which would make a lot of sense with what Brian said earlier, that you have a lot of gamers who are currently online. Uh, and then 5555 in 10th place is the Android Remote Debug Bridge. So taking a look at 123 UDP, you can see a, a number of spikes in the last week or so, uh, maxing out around 500 uh, million scan flows per hour, which is pretty significant. Um, and a lot of these are coming from a single VPS provider in the United States uh, in the range of hundreds of sources. So that's hundred again, that's that's the single most the single largest cluster and, and not just that there are a hundred or under a hundred, you know, hundreds of sources. There are thousands of sources, but the biggest single cluster is in the US. So as we talked about before, uh, NTP is used a lot for reflective DDoS attacks, especially for its amplification factor when you have a server that you know has a list of the last few uh, clients to connect to it, uh, you can get a pretty good amplification attack off of that. Uh, and I tend to agree with Brian that the the most likely thing that's going on here is that you've got folks who are gamers who are you know the, one of the major markets for DDoS traffic, uh, and someone's probably out there looking to build up their botnet, and as a result, is looking to do this. Yeah, actually. Um... Uh, in most cases, the gamers aren't actually the ones building the botnets. There may be somebody, you know, there, there are certainly exceptions to that, but there are actually, you know, there's services. They've, they've monetized the notion of creating denial service attacks, and the process around that is uh, they have to build a botnet, and so they'll do something to compromise endpoints to be able to build that botnet. Uh, they need to find uh, amplification sources to be able to facilitate those DDoS attacks, and I think that's what we're observing here is that uh, they're going through anonymizing proxies to be able to hide where the bots actually are so that the botnet doesn't get taken down, but they're uh, performing that activity looking for NTP servers. They're probably looking for a number of other um, servers as well, but this one just happened to show up on the radar. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turns out, actually, uh, network time pro protocol does have the opportunity to, it's actually the Lismon command that uh, provides the opportunity to be able to create a large response. But a lot of the reputable network service providers that actually put controls in place to prevent those large responses from traversing in or out of the network. And the intent there is to basically damper this. It has really significantly had a positive effect on uh, or inhibiting the use of network time protocol as an amplifier. Uh, but, you know, network time protocol and the servers are all over the internet and they're still available to be able to uh, at least provide responses uh, that wouldn't necessarily keep, a, you know, an attack service from using those. But I think that that's what we're presenting. And then, you know, the client base, the customer base, uh, in many cases, are the folks that are doing competitive online gaming. Right. No, that's that's a very important distinction to make. And those, those folks are signing in and providing a credit card and pointing at an IP address and, and that's the extent of their technical knowledge in a lot of cases, but yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, taking a look, we had a, an interesting spike in the past week on port 443 TLS. Um, the sources are from Germany and from Great Britain. Uh, I do not know what the target web service is, uh, but typically when you see something like this, um, someone is looking for something specific. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good noise floor of, of people scanning across the internet for 443 at all times, but I think someone is looking for a very specific vulnerability or to, to map out the existence of some sort of service. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, samples of that, so I really couldn't say one way or the other what it is. 
And uh, I wanted to come back to a port that we looked at last week. Um, last week, we actually talked a lot about port 5900 TCP, which is VNC, which is it's kind of like a remote desktop protocol, but a little bit different. Um, it's actually not in the top 10 this week. It's down to the top 20, but again, still significant, as you can see from the graph. And the sources, much like last time, for that spike in the last week are from Venezuela, China, and Peru primarily. Why people would scan for this port is that you can log into a lot of boxes and have a full GUI interface to them. Um, some people leave these things on the internet with terrible passwords. Um, I'm not aware of any vulnerabilities that are affecting VNC at this time, um, but password guessing is not out of the question. And once yeah, you get you know, in, you can do anything to the box you want, basically. So it's high value if you're able to get in. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, and there may actually be uh, sort of a, a, a brokering activity here that one group goes out to find compromised machines and then sells them off to other groups that might be, you know, wanting to use them for other nefarious purposes. Uh, one that clearly comes to mind is uh, cryptocurrency mining. Uh, there have been a lot of cases where you know, devices that have been compromised get sold off and then used for inserting cryptocurrency mining uh, software on them, stealing essentially CPU power from these devices. I've actually seen cases where devices have been botted, not necessarily through VNC, but botted, and um, I'm told that they, the, the processing associated with cryptocurrency or DDoS attacks is so intense that it literally melts down the device. That a lot of these IoT devices aren't designed to do more than just, you know, like measure something and report it, and then you turn the CPU into a high compute process function and it actually kind of melts down the device. It can actually have a, you know, physically destroy the device. Hmm. So uh, sort of an interesting observation there. I, I think um, uh, one of the other things, these remote accesses through DMT or perhaps RDP, that's uh, 3389 that showed in your top 10 list, uh, is often a vector used for folks that are trying to do ransomware attacks. That is, a lot of times these remote accesses are set up, particularly in a COVID-19 kind of situation, to provide remote access for administration of an IT network. And if they're not secured properly, they could potentially be compromised, and that could actually result in a ransomware attack against that business, which, uh, you know, obviously the attacker is trying to extort money and um, uh, you know, kind of mapping into the uh, story that Michael had here, uh, the evidence of that would be, in fact, encrypted machines and the opportunity to uh, decrypt those machines. So uh, be careful about the ransomware attacks. It's uh, unfortunately become more popular, one of the most popular extortion types that I've seen. And something to add to that is that I'm, I'm only realizing now is that it's, it's significantly less, it's a lower bar to entry uh, if you can get onto a box that has VNC or RDP installed, like it, it's basically like logging into your own machine at home. You don't have to know how to write new scripts. You don't have to know how to come up with any vulnerabilities or, or write exploit code. You just connect to it and then you download a file while you're on there. And now you've got a box that has ransomware on it. So, yes, and uh, some of the ransomware does have self propagating capabilities. So if that their box has permissions to be able to get to others or perhaps an opportunity to be able to escalate those permissions to get to other machines, uh, it could actually have a significantly devastating effect on the business. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.